calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects, even if it's only at the rate of a sentence a day. Life writing is the application of tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Welcome, everybody. Hey, that's a hot crowd we've got tonight, and you should be excited. We have such a great guest today, debut author Johnny Compton, who wrote the terrifying novel The Spite House, which I can't wait to talk about. But first, I should point out this is the first podcast I've done where Steve could not be here. I know. I didn't know y'all be that upset. I mean, I am still here. Okay, so a little respect. But yes, we had kind of a little bit of a family emergency this morning. We have a teenage son, Jason, you've heard us talk about him, who wanted to go out with a friend. We've been begging him to leave the house, (laughs) begging him to go out with a friend. The minute he goes out with a friend, they ran out of gas, a 210 freeway. So Steve went to go do his daddy thing, which is frankly his favorite thing to be doing. So that's what he's doing right now. But we're here. We have Johnny Compton and there's a lot to talk about. So let me talk about what's going on. There it is. I just, I can't help it. I love that theme music because that's what it always feels like for me. That's what's going on. This week is the week after we finished working in the think tank for Crystal Lake. And my first week back, able to sleep in, 
sort of set our own schedule. As we've discussed in previous podcasts, we got into a really rigid routine where we were working out at 8.30, just, you know, and, and getting everything done before we left the house to try to accommodate the new work schedule. So it's kind of like a staycation <laughs> to be back at home, except what was waiting for me was the crash on the first pass pages for my upcoming novel, The Reformatory, which will be coming out in October. It is historical horror. And I have been just nose to the grindstone. All those little nitpicky changes that were in the back of my mind with my last read, I'm just making it so. It's just a very close read, trying to take out extra words, extra she says and he says when you know damn well who's talking because there are only two of them. And the last person who spoke was not this person. That kind of stuff. Really, really nitpicky stuff. Luckily, there wasn't a whole lot of restructuring at this stage, but my editor kind of surprised me a few weeks ago, right before the room started. He was like, can you write a new ending? This is not the first time this has happened. This is exactly what happened when I wrote my novel, The Living Blood. And I was very happy with my ending. And my editor felt like mm, the readers are going to want more. They're going to want to see a beat beyond where you left it here. You kind of left them dangling emotionally. And I was like, okay. I mean, I, I in my head knew what was going to happen next, but I decided to just put it forth on the page as well. And I have to admit, as with The Living Blood, I think my editor was right. It's a sense of resolution on a deeper level than the one I had envisioned. And I think it works. So it, it's becoming a book, people. It is. It is. It never fails to astound me <laughs> how something goes from being an idea to being an actual book. And now The Wishing Pool, my short story collection, comes out in April. And The Reformatory was originally going to come out last year, but now it's coming out in October. So I am so looking forward to that. But enough about me. Literally enough about me, because we have a great guest today. His name is Johnny Compton. He's a San Antonio-based author whose short stories have appeared in several publications since 2006, including Pseudopod, Strange Horizons, and the No Sleep Podcast. His fascination with frightening fiction started when his kindergarten teacher played a record of the classic ghost story, The Golden Arm, for her class. The Spite House is his debut novel through tour... Nightfire and debut. What a debut. What a novel. Please welcome Johnny. Here he is. Thank you for coming on. (laughs) Here I am. Oh, man. Yay. Oh, calm down. Dang, they didn't clap like that for me. Now I'm a little annoyed. I'm so happy to meet you. I, this is like one of those situations where you just invite someone on the podcast because you want to literally just talk to them. And I'm so glad to meet you. I don't know how to respond to that because the pleasure is all mine. Yeah, you're, you're, you know, this is a a meet your heroes kind of moment. I've I've been looking up to you for a long time now. I I read the between when I I came across it and it kind of changed my whole trajectory of what I thought I could do as a writer. That is so sweet of you not to mention, not to mention how long ago that was or that maybe you were like... (laughs) 12. <laughs> no, not not quite. No, I've, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in my 40 somethings. Yeah, so you're not that much younger, but yeah. I, I totally appreciate it. And 
I can't tell you how excited I am. I've seen a lot of fluctuation in Black horror literature over the years. When I debuted in the 90s, we were, you know, I had never read a horror novel by a Black author, literally. When I started writing The Between, my first novel, I had never even read Octavia Butler. So mm. my my earliest even thought of a Black writer who was writing the metaphysical was Gloria Naylor and Mama Day. And this was super important to me. And, and, and I want to talk to you about this, too, and the importance of representation, because it took me a long time to find myself in my own writing. I, I now, but I, we, we can go back and forth about it. Why we love horror, why you love horror. I'm so glad that, that you found my work and that it was helpful to you. If it was in any way, shape or form is helpful to me as finding Mama Day, then, then I, I, I understand because we need those role models to help us even figure out what we want to write, as opposed to all the different options we have out in the marketplace. So let's start first with your love affair with horror and writing. Sure. Writing. So your teacher ruined you, (laughs) or I should say awakened you when you were very young. What does horror do for you? And why did you choose that as your as your chosen path as a writer? What it does for me is kind of everything. It, it's just emotionally charged up. I feel invigorated when I'm reading the right horror story. I, I feel a sort of a connection to the mystery of it all. And I feel like there's like just this deeper universe. It's gosh, I don't want to sound pretentious. I'm not going to no, quite go, go, as far go, as, go. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go as far as saying it's, it's borderline spiritual, but it does when I, when I'm reading, even to this day, when I read certain styles of, of horror, that just kind of make me feel younger again. And mm-hmm. even when I was a kid, I, I could just remember the idea of horror or something spooky and just a little bit off kilter, just enriching my life and making everything feel like it was more fascinating, in my opinion, maybe it otherwise would be. So I, yeah, I just it, feel like horror does all of that for me. It reaches and grabs you at a deeper, at a deeper, sometimes rooted in our childhood fears, sometimes rooted for me in just utter fear of mortality. Like I won't spoil it, but there is a specific moment in the spite house. Cause you know, I was cool. I, I was listening to the audiobook. I am largely an audio reader and it's a great audiobook, by the way. It's a really good reader. And I, I should have his name. I don't have his name right in front of me. That was our white. Great, great, great reader. And at one point, and I like to listen when I'm going to bed. So I'll set my timer for 15 minutes so I don't wake up, have my ending spoiled, you know, that. And let's just say, I'm not going to give it away, but there was, there were a series of events and speculations having to do with the youngest daughter, Stacy, that made me literally say out loud, nope, (laughs) I was not going to read another word or listen to another word right before bedtime because it just all of a sudden was hitting too close to home in terms of just primal parental fears and I could not let myself go there I was like not that is not when I'm feeding my brain right before bedtime thank you very much and can I tell you I love that feeling I love that feeling it's very rare for me to be scared buy a book. I read a lot of horror. I watch a lot of movies. It's easier for movies to scare me than books. 
And this one scared me. So congratulations on that. Yeah, that's, I don't even know what to say. I, I scared to not arrive do. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You totally did. I, I might hang up my computer after that because <laughs> there's, there's nowhere to go after that. Don't you dare hang up your computer after that. I am a, a fan. I mean, you said something very kind about me and in, in my research where you basically, I forget the wording where you were basically an early adapter of anything I write. And that's how I now feel about Johnny Compton. If you write it, I will read it, period. It's like, I don't even need to know what it's about. <laughs> I would just be like, I'm ready to get back. The less I know, the better. I'm ready to go. And that, And that's how I felt about the Spite House. Tell me. Where did this particular story come from? What made you, because you were writing short stories and then you decided to write a novel? Well, I've been trying to write a novel for, I guess, about 18 or so years. I mean, basically, as long as I've been writing short stories, I I tried my hand at a a novel. God, I guess actually even longer than that now. I I forget how old I am sometimes, what year it is. So yeah, first I wrote my first novel attempt in 2002, I finished it and it's not good and it's still on my computer and I'm still very much tempted to purge it, except I got some advice a long time ago to just never delete anything. So that's the only reason why it's still there. No, um, don't be ashamed of those first efforts. It's it's fun to go back and see how much you've grown. It, it is. It can be a little embarrassing sometimes, but also fun to, to see the progress. So yeah, the, I'd been trying to write novels for a long time. I would get to a certain stage with most of them and uh, just have a crisis of confidence and feel like I can't, this isn't right. This isn't going to be the one that gets me into the, you know, the the level that I want to get to of being able to at least say that I'm a published novelist. And so I would just bail on a lot of books and then start something new. It's always easier to start something new. You have the energy, the fresh energy. I've got a fresh idea now. Then I'd get about, you know, a third or halfway through or so and repeatedly bail on that. And I I did that for about, um, 15 to 20 years before I finally finished the spite house. And I I just caught the right amount of motivation, which, you know, writing is not supposed to be about motivation necessarily. If you want to be a professional, right. You're you're supposed to just kind of focus in my circumstance just happened to be something where an emotional trigger kind of spurred me on in an unusual or unexpected, I guess, way. And I'd had this idea because I, I read an article about spite houses and I'd already had a haunted house story that I had, in mind. And then I read an article about spite houses and I, ooh, ooh, slow down. A, what is, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What is in that article about a spite house? I would love to know. You don't even, rem- it was just a general overview of what spite houses are. And I'd never heard of them before. And then I, I started reading this article and it, it uh, linked over to Wikipedia. And then you read the Wikipedia page about spite houses. And for anybody who doesn't know a spite house, it's a real world thing. And it's literally somebody as the name implies building a house to spite someone else. And there's a long, crazy history of them. And there are, I mean, the more, I've just gone back and revisited recently because the more I talk about it, the more I'm like, I don't even know if I've dug as deep as I'd like to. There are spite churches. There've been spite churches built. There are spite walls and spite fences, just something physically built in a you know residential area or amidst people. And it's an entire building or structure strictly to express anger or disdain or just to aggravate your neighbors or your family members or the government. And I was just blown away by this concept. I kind of uh, love it. It's, it's really petty, but I love it. <laughs> it's ultra petty. 
it's so petty. It's maximum pettiness. Wow. Shout out to uh, one of one of my friends down here in Texas, Agatha Andrews. She mentioned it. She was that was the first word that came to her mind as well. She was like, "That's it's such a petty thing to build this entire house." And I, mean, I can't imagine having the resources and time. You to know, do that. once you brought in contractors, that is just peak pettiness, right? Once you're like <laughs> laying foundations and looking at blueprints, that is petty. Like take it to the highest highest level. So, well, great concept, great title for those of the listeners who have not read the book yet because it just came out. It's it was very recently published. What what's the spoiler free description that you prefer for the spider? Eric, a man named Eric Ross, is on the run with his two daughters and we don't know why why he's on the run you'll find that out as the story progresses but as he is moving his daughters in in a fugitive state from maryland down to texas where he grew up he finds an ad for the titular spite house which is alleged to be haunted and a woman a very wealthy powerful woman in the hill country of texas named eunice is looking for anyone who is willing to stay in the house and prove that it's haunted so it's a kind of classic haunted house set up to that extent but it is taking place in a spite house which as you mentioned is already kind of a off-kilter idea and very unusual and there are also a lot of secrets both by eric obviously being a fugitive and by eunice herself as far as why she wants somebody else to stay in the house because she's terrified to actually go inside and so it's a story with a lot of mist incorporated into the haunting which is very present as well. I like to make sure I stress that to people that this is not one of those, not that I'm objecting to it, but you get sometimes a, a haunted house story with mystery elements. And you're like, was it really haunted after all? Or oh, not? right. Yeah. Yeah. Kind yeah. of pastel Yeah. 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 You, you don't <laughs> no, have this that. ain't that. This ain't that. <laughs> this, ain't, this ain't that. The, the ghosts are very much present. You're, you're yeah. going to see that. Uh, very clearly pretty early on in the book pretty uh, so, early yeah, that's the spoiler on break. there's the, there's a big oh hell no factor and i think i have to commend you because steve and i have a black horror course where way back in the day before jordan peele won his oscar he did a skype that'll show you how long ago it was he did a skype interview mm-hmm. with us and he talked about how important it is to strong psychological basis for why characters would continue to put themselves in a precarious situation. And, you know, very early on, like from the interview, there's this oh hell no factor ringing in my head, but you answer it. You answer it. You, I'm not going to go into details, but there are things Eric does that are exactly what I would have done as a parent pretty early on in this day. And also his reason for wanting to do it is so compelling and so unique, by the way. I just I hadn't never really seen that before. And you know what I'm talking about with Stacy. And I, I at that it's it's like I couldn't argue with it. Part of me was like, you need to leave. What the hell are you doing? You need to go. <laughs> but at the same time, you've created this super, super compelling reason. Was that a deliberate process on your part? To, like, especially writing about Black characters, let's just be real. Because as Richard Pryor said in his famous joke about The Exorcist, <laughs> if that had been a Black family, it would be like a five-minute movie. Hello. Goodbye. So how did you get around the hello, goodbye of it all? You know, I... Thought about a lot of, like you said, a lot of the the history of that and the jokes. You mentioned Richard Pryor. Eddie Murphy has his great bit about, hey, you know, if that had been me with the poltergeist and my daughter, it'd be like, hey, I tried to change the channel after she got sucked into the TV. 
didn't work, so we had to leave. Um, <laughs> exactly. That's it. In so the movie. Roll credits. In, in the movie, right? <laughs> so I, I had a lot of that in mind um, when I wrote it. So it was a deliberate decision on my part to try to figure out the best way that I could to avoid some of those questions. Like you mentioned, some of those, the psychological components of why don't you just leave? Right. I used to work in banking and in, in the mortgage industry. So I kind of still have this mentality too of, you know, now that I'm a grown up, you know, I, I asked those questions a lot more before. And now I'm kind of like, well, I would, I think I could sympathize with some of the haunted house characters where if I just moved in and I sank my, my deposit in, and I got my down payment and my credit's going to get screwed up. If I leave, what's the degree of the haunting we're talking? Right. I mean, I mean, I could deal with footsteps in my house if that's as bad as it gets. Now, if you start, you know, you know if knives start going missing, right. We, we gotta, we gotta like leave, but some stuff is less scary than actually getting a foreclosure from my my banking background perspective. No, that's for, true. For the, for the Spite House, one of the things I wanted to focus on was I kind of wanted to skip past that part where you don't know if the haunting is really there. And oh, you the skipped daughters. it. You skipped it. All yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you normally have it where like the, the daughter, you know, one daughter sees the ghost and then the rest of the family has to be convinced. And it uh, yeah. takes its time. Oh, my God. I hate the gaslighting and horror. And, you know, like it, I, I wanted to just jump to, OK, we're all on the same page. We're all kind of accepting of the idea that ghosts might be there. I think that's one of the interesting things when it comes to, to black folks as well, that we have this history that doesn't get examined of us kind of accepting the idea of ghosts. You know, I'm from the South. Right. And uh, I've, I've got a lot of family that th they read it and, you know, the, the ones that have read and talked about it. And they all of a sudden are telling me about old ghost stories or sayings that older family members kept to themselves maybe, but that everybody kind of knew about, they'd whisper something. Oh yeah. We, we all knew about this one house or we say this about spirits or had this incident. We're very connected with the supernatural yes, and we don't often get to explore that. I feel like that, that kind of classic sense of us growing up with ghosts a lot of the time and just kind of accepting it and still being afraid as you, as you ordinarily would be if you were anybody else, but kind of approaching it from this perspective of, expecting it a little bit and mm -hmm. i wanted to explore that as well i feel like that was that would be something a little bit different not too different i mean you do that with with the good house right mm -hmm. and you know there's the history there mm -hmm. in the good house of oh you know maybe some of this hasn't been discussed previously but you dig a little bit into it and it's like okay we've, we've got veterans that kind of know how to deal with this and have already accepted it and it helps you to jump past like you said the gaslighting parts of it and stuff like that and and navigate past that and to be able to get straight to some of the the to me the more interesting stuff with with haunted house stories or scary place stories which is the history and the way people have reacted to the history of whatever the scary place is you can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything you might shop while working eating or even listening to this podcast and however you shop we all know and love the thrill of the hunt but do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. 
or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you do a great job of that. And and as I mentioned earlier, my novel, The Reformatory, is a historical horror novel. And even though yours isn't historical, obviously when you're writing about ghosts, so much of the origin story is based in history. And not just based in history, but based in this tendency we have as a society, as families, as individuals to try to pave over unpleasant history and forget Mm -hmm. that these things happen. And I think it's a very dangerous practice. It leads to a kind of social and family amnesia which I think enables that history to, to continue to have power inadvertently, right? You're actually giving up more power by yes. trying to, to paper over it, I think. I, I completely agree and, and give it a, a negative power. You know, history can, it's like anything else, history can have a, a positive or a negative, but so much of the history that we, we try to deliberately forget ends up kind of resurfacing even more dangerously when we try to paper over it, as you indicated there. So it's it's really important to be able to write about it or, or talk about it in a way that that confronts the history and doesn't hide from from some of that that ugliness that we've had in the past. And I think that horror does a good job of not only examining the history, but examining, like you said, the the impact that often you know so often happens. Most horror stories or haunted house stories there's always a secret that they've mm-hmm. tried to hide with the history. And that's why that's part of what enables the ghosts to take people by surprise, to be yes. so powerful. There, there are these secrets that people have held on to. There are lies. There are things that need to be uncovered. And it's always, I mean, from a writing perspective and from a, from a reading or, or watching perspective, for me, it's always kind of fun to uncover the mystery, but at the same time, you're, you're watching it, you know, that sort of thing always makes me cringe a little bit and not in a bad, you know, way as far as, you know, re- relating to the story, but just cringe, just like from a, just a viewer or a reader standpoint, just like, oh, I, I know these characters are, there's, there's something here that's going to be unearthed. And I wish people had just been honest about it from right. the beginning, but then you don't get a story that way, but it, it is no. just a, a fascinating way to examine that. Well, as I've been rereading my manuscript for the reformatory, I'm reminded that it took me seven years to write this novel. It's the longest I've ever spent on a novel. For that one, it was because it was based in family history, even though it was family history that I did not know about. Again, it had been kept secret. Oh, I don't think my mother had been told that her her uncle died at this the Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida in the 1930s. And I decided to fictionalize it. 
attorneys, this is all fiction. This is not saying that this is the Doja School. <laughs> it's called the Gracetown School for Boys. But it was just really, really difficult to write it. And COVID was the thing that conv- that got me really focused. I was letting myself scatter over, oh, let me write a short story. Oh, I'm going to work on this script. But COVID, like the notion, oh, I might die with this unfinished, mm-hmm. was really, really clarifying for me. So how long did it take you to write The Spite House? And you mentioned that there was some kind of incident that, that kind of motivated you. I don't know if it's something you want to talk about, but do you remember what that was? Sure. Yeah. I actually, before COVID, this was October, late October of 2019. I went to visit my brother who lives in the DC area, my brother and my sister-in-law and went to the, uh, the, uh, the Smithsonian museum they have there for African-American history, which if anybody, if, if you've never been, I strongly encourage you. It's, it's amazing. And I believe it's the fourth floor that is devoted to arts and entertainment. Mm. And I just was there and I just had a very emotion i was i was moved by just the idea of all of these black creators who had preceded me who overcame some incredible monumental hardships to get their art get their entertainment get their voice out into the world and here i am um preventing myself from completing a book because i keep telling myself i'm not good enough uh-huh. and so immediately I, I left when we were done with the the tour and everything. I just went to my, I was in the backseat of my brother's car and I, I wrote myself a note in my phone, basically saying, I'm not going to be able to forgive myself for all the time I've wasted, but I'm just going to do better going forward. Mm. And from there, I was, I was at the point in the spite house where normally I would have given up if it was every other book, basically that had preceded it, except for that first one that I don't like anymore. I was, I was right at that about halfway point. Instead of giving up on it, I just spent the next few months saying, okay, we're just going to, we're going to make sure that this gets done and see what happens with it. You know, if it's, if it's not good, then let somebody else tell you, don't be the person that tells yourself that. And so then it, it, from there, so previous to that, it had taken about maybe a, a year and a half or so to, uh, to get to that point in the book. And then from there, October, late October of 2019 to late January of 2020, I was done. So the back half of the book only took a few months compared to the first half that took about a a year and a half because of a lot of, I had some competing ideas. I didn't know where I wanted. Again, it was a lot of stop start, a lot of telling myself that this isn't right. And and just a crisis of confidence that, that was not something foreign to me, unfortunately at the time. And, you know, I I don't think that ever completely is going to go away, but in that moment, I definitely had something that, that motivated me to actually get this one done. And, and here I am. So, you you know, I, I can't be thankful enough for that, that, that moment. Well, I, you know, forgive yourself for the time when you didn't know you were ready. I didn't know the between was ready. It sat in a drawer for nine months. I it was rejected a couple places. I said, okay, it's another practice book. And I started writing my soul to keep. So I, it really, you know, it, it takes, it can be hard sometimes to, to see our own abilities and capacities and to believe in ourselves as artists, especially when there are and have been so few people before us trying to do things that are similar to what we're trying to do. When I started publishing, like I said, I had never read a horror novel. I wouldn't even call Mama Day necessarily a horror novel, but at least it had metaphysical, you know, sort of aspects. But I had never read a horror novel by a Black writer. And I remember writing my sister, do you think there would be an audience for this? I just didn't know. I was just very lucky to be coming of age in the 90s when there was this huge Black arts renaissance cinema and literature when they were basically just throwing everything up against the wall to see if it could stick. And that's how I came in 
And, and, and even though the Horror Writers Association did embrace me, I, I didn't know that audience as well. I, it was more about the Black booksellers, the Black mm-hmm. bookstores. And when I look at what's different in the era where you're emerging, is that I would say that both Black readers and horror readers are much more aware of Black horror than they were in the 1990s and are very welcoming. I mean, I've seen all kinds of praises for this book from all kinds of people because I I think that's, I mean, how do you find the horror community? So far, I mean, everybody in the horror community that I've, I've had a chance to have any kind of deep interaction with has been excellent. There's so much diversity, even than I anticipated like you said you know i went to StokerCon last year so they you know i had a chance to meet some some really outstanding people that were that were there to embrace me you know there's a great latin american presence as well now in the in the horror community uh, people yeah, of color yeah. just a, a wide range of them and of course we, we've got some some significant great allies i think from you know folks that have been maybe more accustomed to becoming published in horror so right now i've i've got glowing things to say about the horror community and even some of the the challenges that have maybe come up and you know some 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 recent unfortunate events there's been a great presence of people galvanizing and kind of circling the wagons immediately to say we're not going to stand for this in our community from all walks and and making sure that they're uh, you know the, the solidarity is is very present and and proving that the people that would try to undermine that are the outliers. They're not really any kind of significant presence anymore in, in this community. If you know, I'm sure they, you know, th- there was a place for that in the past, as there was pretty much anywhere in society. But we're we're trying to do our part to um, elevate the voices that are there to to uplift everybody and eliminate any kind of a uh, you know, like I said, people people's attempts to undo the progress that's been made. Right there inevitably will always be people who are not with the program. But I know when we had Victor Laval on the show, he talked about how much more welcoming and embracing he thought the horror community was than say the literary writing Mm. community, Mm. (laughs) so-called, which is sort of where he had come of age, but just more embracing and less cutthroat, I think, which I was like, okay, that's interesting. But my last Stoker Con, and this was goes a few years back, was I was there with Stephen Graham Jones, which was amazing okay. to, to meet him. But what I remember most vividly was movie night, like where you take the short films and everybody watches these little horror shorts. And it was crammed, like shoulder to shoulder, no chairs left. So I'm sitting on the floor, all of us craning up to look at the screen like we're 10-year-old kids. And I think that that, in a nutshell explains the horror community. We're 10-year-old kids. (laughs) We've loved it since we were kids. We still love it with the same childish fervor we loved it with then. And it's it's interesting, you know, for me, my mother was a civil, my late mother, Patricia Stevens-Dew, was a civil rights activist, and she was the first horror fan in my life. And I really believe that she used horror as a way to leech out trauma, and I didn't get that while she was living. I wish I could have discussed that with her. I mean, she probably would have been like, mm, I just like monsters. But I really think that that was it for her. And I see that more since the loss of my mother is the biggest trauma I've suffered so far. I can see how that would be a relief. Like imaginary monsters and ghosts and demons are nothing like the true life tragedies that sometimes we face. So it's an escape for me. And I feel bad for people who can't look at horror as an escape just because you wish everybody 
could get the same, you know, goodies that you get, but it doesn't work that way for everybody. But it does horror feel like an escape for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was uh, present for me even as a kid. I was very sickly as a kid. I, I had some yeah. severe asthma episodes. Yeah. And apparently, I don't really remember almost dying, but my, my folks have told me about it multiple times. All I oh, remember, they remember. They remember. They, they remember. Yes, they were very traumatized, much more so than than. I would have been at least in that particular instance, but I do remember just repeatedly being in and out of the hospital and you have your moments where you can't breathe and mm. coming to realize at a young age, like, oh man, I, I, I might not make it out of a hospital one day because you see how everybody's reacting around you and kind of treating you with a certain level of delicacy that makes you feel like, oh, this, this could be it for me. So growing up with a lot of that, I, I do think that that was also horror was a way for me to deal with the psychological trauma of realizing your mortality so young and what better way to do that than to think, Oh, well, there's a way we still carry on. Mm -hmm. I, I might die, but I'll still be a ghost. I, you know, I might have a different kind of life and adventure out here. And again, this kind of grand mystery beyond the veil mm -hmm. and horror is a, is a great way to kind of explore that. And the idea that maybe you still get to you still get to kind of live as well, not just exist. This is going to sound probably odd, but, you know, there, you know, I grew up in a religious family. You know, so I, I was embedded with that idea of heaven, right? You, you know, well, if, if you you live right, you move on, you get to go to heaven. But heaven, for lack of a better term, especially when you're a kid, kind of sounds boring. Mm, <laughs> it's always, yeah. you know, streets clouds, paved with gold, harps. clouds, literally no conflict, no stress. It's like, well, will I ever like, is, is there anything to do? Is there ever going to be a moment of danger? Is there ever going to be a moment where you're like... <laughs> I'm, I'm still scared because I, you know, I'm watching horror movies or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, like I, I feel the energy of being afraid and it's not, you know, I'm, I'm sure my parents would, would still say like, yeah, it, was, it was kind of aggravating that you were really into this because I definitely had a lot of sleepless nights and would wake up and they'd be like, Oh, you just try to stay awake for school today, please. After mm. you, you know, stayed up watching children of the corn and freaking yourself out. But <laughs> it was still a way for me to also process in a healthy way, the trauma of, or the idea of like, I, I could very much die because I, I have an allergic reaction to the wrong thing and my lungs lock up and now I, I can't breathe and I'm, I'm going to, you know, suffocate in, in my hospital bed or something. Mm. But then I'm still gonna be able to to carry on in a way that's exciting and still kind of fun. And I'm I'm alive still. And then, you know, if I want to move on to heaven, you know, be, maybe it'll be like the movie Ghost, Patrick Swayze, which is the first movie I ever saw by myself in a theater as a kid, which is like still crazy to think about wow. for me. But uh, that, that it really spoke to me in, in terms of like this idea of like, yeah, this is, this is what I've really always kind of imagined as a ghost. Like you kind of want to move on and there's the beauty and the peace of of this ideal paradise but before that you, don't you kind of want to still live some and do mix some of the it up fun a little bit mix it up get a chance to make some mistakes and yeah like all, all that good stuff and horror stories and ghost stories i think give you that opportunity in a different way is horror going to be your you think your primary path i talked to an author yesterday who said he doesn't like the word genre but he likes the word frequency and i was like okay i like that is, is horror going to be your frequency do you do you see going forward or was this a fluke or is that how story speaks to you what is how story speak to me almost all of my ideas are horror stories i've got some crime fiction that i would like to do i've, I've even got some romantic comedy ideas and stuff so i've, I've, I've got different ideas but i mean i don't know 80 to 90 percent of my ideas probably that's underestimating it it's it's on the horror frequency for sure even my crime fiction is it, it has some horror components to even some of the crime stories that i i've i've thought of so yeah that's that's where my home base is for sure 
Well, I love that. And and I bless you for that. That's exactly how it is for me. I, you know, I came of age trying to imitate my college classmates who were writing literary epiphany stories. And that led me down the path of writing white male protagonists having epiphanies mm. or or maybe a white woman from time to time. <laughs> but I was when I say I was lost in the weeds, I, I had not found myself either as a black woman in my own work or as a horror writer in my own work until long after school. So hats off to you. There were times I wished that was not how a story came to me, because even in the 90s, you know, I would hear these reports that people were taking the book covers off the book because it scared them. And they were, the book clubs were afraid to read the books because they were afraid that it was satanic or, you know, I mean, things have changed probably a bit since the 90s. Uh, quite a bit has changed since the 90s. But yeah, there were times I wish, oh, why? Why do my stories come to me as horror? What's wrong with me? But it is what it is. So you just have to make your peace with that. <laughs> and, and I mean, at the same time, I'm I'm enjoying the benefits, like you said, of times changing from the 90s because horror has gone under this massive kind of rehabilitation to the extent of I was listening to a podcast talking about the Oscars yesterday. And mm-hmm. they were talking about how horror is kind of the last frontier of the Oscars. That's, you know, after the I think deserved an amazing win for everything, everywhere, all at once, which I loved. But they were talking about how that's like a full, complete science fiction film. You know, it's got mm-hmm. all these family drama mm-hmm. components as well that that magnify it. But it's it's multiversal yes. science fiction, you know, different dimensions. And it, it, you know, not only just won, but cleaned up at the Oscars. And somebody had written into the podcast to ask them. When do you think it's going to be basically horror's turn? And there was a strong, I felt like, discussion about you know one of one of the the one of the hosts on the podcast has been a big proponent of nope, um, mm-hmm. and he he was he he thought it was maybe one of the you know not not maybe he thought it was one of the best movies of the year and maybe his pick for best movie of the year even, and so he thought you know it, it's it's going to you know if that didn't do it he felt a little disheartened because he thought nope could have been there at least in the discussion, but he said it's going to happen probably sooner or later, and I just I appreciated the idea that they were even having this discussion so passionately and eagerly because I do at least remember a time in you know my younger days when the idea even of when is a horror movie going to be next to to get serious consideration for an Oscar would have just kind of been laughed at. So I think the entire right. genre is getting a a it's it's in the midst of and has been in the midst of for a, a, enough time now that you can feel it's not just a temporary wave. It's a sustained pattern of people really respecting what it's capable of doing beyond just slashing people to pieces, which, by the way, nothing wrong with that either. I mean, hey, sometimes that's, that, that's what we're there for. That has its place. <laughs> but we are extraordinarily lucky in horror to have artists of such a high caliber who have entered the field and who have made the field their home, you know, starting at least in my reading experience with the Stephen King, who who got a National Medal of Arts, even though my classmates looked at me with horror when I said he was one of my favorite writers in college. Just like, how would you dare bring up Stephen King's name at a college campus? But that's all ludicrous. It's all ludicrous. And I think it is starting to shed some of the stigma more people are understanding the relationship between horror and trauma, its ability to heal, but also metaphor, which is how Jordan Peele was able to sneak in there with his best original screenplay for Get Out. I don't know that they were so much trying to honor it because it was horror. Probably they were honoring it despite the fact that it was horror. But for a lot of viewers, I don't think they saw it as horror because unless you were coming from a very specific experience, it wasn't as scary to you as it was thoughtful. You know what I mean? It like it was thought provoking and discussion inducing. I did many, many panels 
moderating discussions about the ideas and get out. And I was surprised that even us, Lupita, I thought deserved some recognition for oh, yeah. at least for us. And yes, for nope, if, if if not best picture, then how do you how do you not have best cinematography on there? I mean, what? <laughs> so there, I think there is a little bit of that stigma left. I agree with you, but it is the last frontier. Let's let's see it move forward. Let me ask you, how do you keep yourself balanced? It sounds like you have a, a family. Is is writing your full time job or is it? I did it for fifteen years. I don't even recommend it. I teach and I also write screenplays, so that is writing. But I don't rely on books solely for my income. It's tough, you know, the artist's life. So how do you keep in balance? As writing right now is my full time job, and that was a decision made relatively recently. But it is it is my full time job, and I'm fortunate for that. Well, um, congratulations, because not everybody can do that. Yeah, seriously, yeah, and that, do I'm, that as I'm feeling as very. Is you can stomach it. <laughs> yeah, I, as I'm feeling extraordinarily blessed for that, and it is interesting because I'm I'm the worst boss I've ever had already, and so that <laughs> that speaks to the the balance. I am finding a, a better balance with being able to make my own schedule and split my work day into kind of chunks, so to speak. Being better about doing that is, is helping me to, to keep myself a little bit more balanced. The idea of telling stories is such a, and, and just absorbing myself with stories. I, I love going to the movies. And so it, it's strange for me because I do want to be more balanced and I feel like I, I struggle somewhat with it. But at the same time, I've been I've been waiting for this and wanting this so badly, 25 years or so of my life. I, I've I've kind of just leaned into the idea of it's okay if it's a little imbalanced right now because I'm I'm enjoying that part of it. Does that mean late um, nights, lack of sleep? How does it, how do, what does imbalance look like to you? Some late nights, some lack of sleep. To be fair, I've, I've, I've never been a great sleeper. So that's, I can't blame all of that on the, the writing and everything, but there is a component of that. Yeah. Late nights, lack of sleep, forgetting to eat when you know you should be eating, forgetting to drink enough water when mm. you know you should be hydrating. Lots of, of those things. And even just kind of, scheduling some of my time away from the office in my house around just going elsewhere to keep writing. So like my little ventures outside of the house are just, ah, what if I go to the local library today to write mm-hmm. instead of just being cooped up in the office all the time. But to me, I, I just, I'm still in the process right now, at least of, because I'm so new to it, I think of just still enjoying the idea of the imbalance, so to speak, because I'm like, I can't believe I'm still doing this. And I still think of, you know, when, when being cooped up in the office was at a, somebody else's office, right. It was for the major corporation and not really having the option of, well, I'm going to work from the library today. So I just kind of embrace those idea. I'm going to sleep in as late as I want today, unless you have young kids, in which case that's not for a while yet, but but, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, there's, there's a definitely an amount of freedom I found it very helpful to have self-imposed deadlines. That was one of the things that occurred to me about the reformatory. It was not only the the novel it took me the longest to write, but in recent years, it was the only novel I was writing speculatively that did not have a deadline attached to it. I had sold so many other novels based on an outline in three chapters after I was established. That wasn't how it was in the beginning by any means. But once you get to the point where you can sell a novel based on an outline in three chapters, why would you not want to do that? <laughs> but I decided <laughs> with the reformatory, I would wait until it was finished and see, you know, was it YA? I, I just didn't want, I wanted to just write it purely without anyone's voice in my ear 
and and see what would come out. So good luck with that. Are are and before I let you go, are you getting film interest in the Spite House? I mean, you don't have to be specific because I do believe in the jinx. I believe in the jinx. But what but what can you tell me? I know somebody has to have called you. I believe in the jinx too. I'm so glad you said that. I feel so validated. (laughs) All of my all of my other you know, friends and family, and I love them all, but they're always, no, you got to they're more the speak it into existence. You're going to say that this is going to be, this is going to be a movie because you said it. And I'm like, well, I've, I've tried that in the past. It doesn't always that, work out. That works everywhere except in Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I, I, yeah. In Hollywood, I, I follow... that's called violating your NDA. <laughs> exactly. But we, we have had some interest. We, we've, we've been in pro- process and, and made some progress with some of those discussions. So I've got my fingers crossed. I'm hopeful and, and staying positive about it, just enjoying the process and, and what I'm learning from it. I've got a couple of irons in the fire with, with regard to not just the Spite House, but some other ventures with, you know, hopefully some some things being adapted from some stories I've written. So we'll, we'll see where it, where it goes. But, you know, for, for now, I'm just I'm to me, it's been incredible. Just some of the people I've got a chance to meet and some of the things I've had a chance to learn. Some of the lessons I've been able to apply from listening to you and Steve on your podcast. Really? That's um, great. Yes. To, to just kind of help me also just to kind of say, OK, like there, there was one story you guys told that I tell other people anytime I'm like, you got to listen to them, tell the story and, you know, just the the one where you you you're part of the team and you're working on something you keep getting notes and notes and I believe it was werewolves and then at the end they were like well, well does it have to be oh yeah and, it was oh, gosh no I've forgotten what it was but it was like yeah, yeah does it have to be I mean if you knew how long yeah. we were driving back and forth this right. was before Zoom meetings this was in the car like ninety minutes each way for some thirty year old sipping a water bottle <laughs> to casually say. Does it have to be? It's like, what? This is what we've been talking about since day one. What do you, just so dismissive and so disrespectful, but with a smile, you know, that's Hollywood for you. And I would just say, enjoy the ride. And my best advice for you is because I know you have written a screenplay and you have some interest in screenwriting. Definitely keep working on your scripts just for fun. Maybe write a short script adapting one of your short stories yourself. Because (laughs) when that time comes, there's no guarantee they'll buy it. But there's also no guarantee they won't. And there's not only more money, but much more influence if you are the screenwriter as well as the author. That is the path Victor took. He's got the Changeling now over at, I think, Apple Plus and something else he's working on at AMC. We're trying to pitch all kinds of stuff where we've finally been invited to have a seat at the table. And if you like writing full time, Screenwriting can make you a lot more money. I've I've heard, <laughs> I've heard that it is yeah a little bit more lucrative as as from a professional writing standpoint. It's hard to get a seat at that table. It's maybe the hardest thing people have ever done. But when when you've published, you are halfway there because your IP is already attractive, and they come to you. It's so much better when producers are coming to you <laughs> rather than you having to like you know beg and scrape at producers' doors. But after 20 some years of that, or maybe not quite that long, I was trying to learn screenwriting as early as the beginning of the marriage, like 20 years ago. So it's a process. It's a long process. It does not happen like anything in Hollywood, especially in Hollywood. It does not happen overnight. Take all those stories at the Oscars about people struggle to heart. (laughs) I mean, there are established screenwriters who struggle and, Mm -hmm. and 
you never know. Sometimes lightning does strike. And the next thing you know, boom, you are selling your first script. It's a great feeling. But for now, enjoy selling those books. I'm assuming you have another one in the works. I do. I do. Working on book two. Working on a self-imposed deadline of sorts as as well. So very good to have that deadline. There's the contractual deadline, but then I'm trying to be aggressive about that and come up with my own ahead of schedule a little bit. Oh, trying to make up for the last time, eh? At least in terms of how long. (laughs) Trying to make up for 25 years. So was it, and this is the last thing I'll ask you, do you think it was the mental piece that finally got you over that halfway hump? Because the halfway point is when you've set up the situation it's like the ticking up on the roller coaster and then you come down where you have to pay it all off. And was it the payoff part? Did it not interest you as much as, or was it, you literally did not feel you had the capacity to do it. It was, it was mental. I didn't feel I had the capacity to do it and I wasn't giving myself a chance and I didn't appreciate for years and years until I don't, I don't know what exactly how, why it clicked for me, this more practical part of it. But you're going to have to rewrite anyway. So stressing yourself out about the idea of like, well, I'm not, I would want to get everything so perfect. It felt like, Mm. and mentally I would think I'm, I'm screwing it up. I'm blowing it. This, you know, I'm going to get halfway here and I've got this idea and then I'm not going to, I'm not going to see it through and I'm not going to stick the landing and you know, okay. So just rewrite it and fix it afterward then if, if you need to, but at least give yourself a chance. And I wasn't even giving myself a chance for all those years. So it was definitely a mental block. Wow. Well, you heard it here, everybody. If you are a writer or you want to be a writer in in the life writing program that Steve and I sell online, we encourage writers to start with short stories just because you can get lost in, in the novel. And I've had experiences where I've known people who stopped writing, you know, because they were so lost in one novel. So I'm so glad that you persevered. You got past it. You got over the hump. Thank you for the gift. That is the Spite House. Don't forget, if you are an aspiring artist, if you like this podcast, the Life Writing Premium Program is kind of just like this podcast, but in more of a course form. So we're talking about everything from short stories to screenwriting to adaptation to characterization. Check it out at www.lifewritingpremium.com. Steve isn't here this week to talk about the Tai Chi program. So I'm just going to remind people about Life Writing. Johnny Compton, thank you so much for being here. I cannot wait to see what you write next. Welcome to the field. Everyone go out and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.